JM and the AM on a Wednesday. Uh, well, our good friend, Dr. Stuart Ditchick, uh, great um, uh, pediatrician, doctor, author, lecturer, founder of, uh, co-founder of Kids of Courage, and wonderful guest on the air, um, is with us live via telephone. I felt it was important to get an update after, I don't know what this is already, week 12, week 13 of everybody being relatively isolated. I know that uh, there are certain things opening up, and I also know that people are very anxious about what's coming this Monday in New York when finally the five boroughs joins the rest of New York State in actually starting to officially reopen. So I figured we should get his reaction to a bunch of uh, a bunch of information that is out there. Dr. Stuart Ditchick, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Baruch Hashem, Dr. Anthony Fauci is somewhat optimistic. He wasn't happy that some certain news was leaked about uh, about medical trials, uh, but he is somewhat optimistic about a potential vaccine before the end of 2020. He doesn't know how potent that vaccine may be. He's wondering about the strength and or weakness of a vaccine that's out by 2020. What's your reaction to this story? So what Dr. Fauci voiced, I believe, and appropriately so, was, He's, he has guarded optimism about the vaccine. He, you have to remember, he's a scientist with the National Institute of Health, and uh, he's one of the very, very talented people and educated people who look at the results. Uh, you know, what his warning is that people should understand that we don't, just like we don't understand the short-term immunity that people get once they've had the virus, we don't yet understand or have the data to support how long the vaccine will offer immunity at all. Uh, when we see we see from flu vaccine that the immunity conferred by the vaccine is several months uh, over a period of a flu season. Uh, his question is, will it be several months? Will it be a year? Will it be two years? Will people need multiple doses of the vaccine? He didn't have the answer to any of those because none of us do right now. And I think Dr. Fauci was correctly expressing cautious optimism. Um, so we, even if there will be a vaccine, nobody can predict, uh, as you just said, what the protocol will be, how often it has to be taken, uh, what type of potency it'll have. There are a lot of questions that really need to be answered. That's for sure. Um, while we're on the topic of vaccination and, um, and immunization, uh, before we actually talk about the, the, uh, the, the, the exact topic of vaccination, uh, is there any further evidence that one who has had COVID or one who's testing positive for antibodies is either forever or for a season immune? No. The answer to uh, that question is no. We Nobody in the scientific world that I'm aware of that's studying COVID uh, immunity uh, has said that you have a seasonal immunity to COVID. I wish that were the case. If that were the case, we would be in very, very good shape throughout the world right now with the number of people who've had COVID. Uh, what we do know is that the sicker you are, generally, the more antibodies you make. Uh, we also know that those antibodies, at least in a percent, in the mildly affected people, we believe over a period of weeks, the IgG antibodies uh, that develop after five to seven days tend to decrease somewhat over a few weeks. We don't know yet whether you have long-term uh, memory cell immunity uh, from uh, having a habit of COVID infection. What we believe is that people who've had COVID, who have very significant antibody reactions, at least have probably some short-term immunity from getting it again. That's what we believe currently. Uh, however, the data is out on that. The task force working group that I'm part of uh, had a meeting about this this past week. 
uh, and there was not an expert on the phone who had any differing view on that, including immunologists who were working on the antibody studies. So we don't know yet what the antibodies mean. What the antibodies are useful for right now, other than treatment, we believe, for seriously sick COVID patients, what the antibodies are useful for are telling us that a patient, that a person did have the infection. That it appears to be very useful for. It is not yet useful for telling somebody whether they've had immunity, and that would be a huge error for us to make that mistake. You, you know and that I'm you seeing, know that a lot of people are making that error, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I I have this every day. I've gotten uh, phone calls every day from people who are uh, telling others, uh, uh, "I can now go see Grandma and Grandpa. I measured positive for antibodies." I can go to the hospital and visit a COVID patient. I've measured positive for antibodies. It's fascinating to me how people will misuse information. And quite frankly, there have been physicians and clinicians in our own community who have disseminated that information incorrectly, despite uh, being told that this is not an immunity test. So uh, I'm disappointed when I hear it. I think we have to learn very much from the experiences across the world now, including in Israel, which we'll talk about in a minute. But no, it is not an immunity test. And yes, it is indicative that you've had the infection. And I promised, as I vaguely referenced a couple of minutes ago, that we'd uh, ask you about the immunization through vaccine because there are people in our community, as you know, and other communities who will do anything uh, to prevent uh, vaccinations uh, being added to the list of vaccines that are being recommended and in most schools are required in order for a child uh, to attend. Um with that in mind, I think, and I think you and I discussed this on the air already once during all these COVID updates, with that in mind, we all have to be prepared for a major campaign against the vaccine and a good part of that campaign likely, unfortunately, coming from our community. Yes, and to be clear, uh, the last two weeks, the vitriol against me and others like me who are advocating on behalf of patients from the anti-vaccine community has been horrible. Uh, yesterday, they put out a, uh, a fake uh, picture of me on a news channel with a heading under it saying, pediatrician reverses uh, opinion on uh, uh, pandemic, no longer a threat. Uh, I have to tell you that they also recently, uh, somebody's been sending me, they put together little blurbs, they cut and paste my voice uh, to come out with messages that try to uh, um, uh, make the messenger look foolish. So this is what I want to say to the public. If you see reasonable clinicians who appear to be sending a message that sounds crazy, it's probably from that community. Uh, and this is a warning to everybody. Uh, I've seen this misinformation campaign during the measles outbreak, during whooping outbreak years ago, whooping cough. Um, the public has to be aware that the anti-vaccine community is going through great lengths already to discredit those of us who are trying to encourage people to get a vaccine once a safe vaccine exists. Uh, they will go through great lengths to scare the public. It's going to happen. It's happening already. What I will tell you is that if the FDA approves these vaccines, and I hope that they will approve at least the ones that are, you know, are currently being studied here in the U.S. and several of them abroad, uh, we need to make sure all of us get the vaccine. And one thing I promise you, not a child in New York State will be allowed into school without a COVID vaccine. That I guarantee you, those discussions have taken place already, uh, I'm sure, at the city and state level. Dr. Stuart Ditchick's with us. What did you want to mention about Israel? 
So Israel is a cautionary tale for everybody. I think everybody has to pay close attention to what's going on in Israel this morning. Currently, there's 30-plus schools uh, closed down over the last two and a half weeks. Israel opened up the schools at the same time that they opened up uh, shuls, restaurants, other institutions. And apparently they overshot. Uh, This is data directly from Israel this morning. Over 30 schools are currently in closure. There's 10,000-plus students in quarantine and uh, the, there's a debate going on between the education ministry and the health ministry. The health ministry wants every school closed down again. Uh, the education ministry is saying we'll only shut down schools where a single COVID case appears. But the cautionary tale is that Israel thought they were through it. And by the way, Israel's a much more sophisticated testing country than we are. Uh, they have testing tracking they use iphone and smartphone technology and they, they enforce with police officers right i was just uh, going to say they enforce it right yeah they're much stricter than we are and they overshot uh, even with their strict enforcement so they're threatening even further closures beyond the schools and unfortunately most of the covid icus that closed two weeks ago have now been reopened in israel so i want to caution everybody this is very important for us to pay attention to israel not only in how they've dealt with it in a positive way, but how they're looking at themselves from introspection to see how they could reverse and do it better a second time around, because they're terrified of a surge. And by the way, their surge, was their initial cases weren't even a fraction of the ones we had in the United States. And it has to do with the way we roll out things in the next month or so. And I think we need to pay attention to Israel. And for those of us who are pining to travel to Israel, I think we've got to come to the reality that it's going to be a lot longer than we think before they allow anybody in from any other country, especially the New York, New Jersey area. Correct. That is correct. Uh, Dr. Stuart Ditchick is with us. All right. Um, look, you know, here I, I can't speak for some of the for some of the minyanim that have taken place over the last 10 weeks. Uh, you and I and, and thousands of others are, are angry that our brothers uh, and sisters, because a lot of our brothers' wives endorsed it, um, you know, put, put other people in the community in danger. Uh, during Pesach and and the weeks before and the weeks after, and we've discussed this a million times, and you have had very strong words about how you regard them as quote unquote members of the community going forward. Uh, I do want to say, however, that there were minyanim that took place on Shavuos that I think if you saw them, you would say to yourself, you would say, I'm not I'm not putting words in your mouth that you would have endorsed them, but you would have said kolakavod that at least the rabbis of those minyanim really did in a large sanctuary keep 10 people and only 10 completely separate, everybody in masks, one Balkore, you know, who got all the alias, nobody touched anything, people wore gloves, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I, and I think you would have said that about some of the minyanim that took place. With all that in mind and knowing that the OU uh, restrictions are, are starting to be lifted because of the two-week uh, deadline that's being met and knowing what's going on in New York State in general, has your opinion about, and also keeping in mind that certain Torah giants, to their credit, have announced publicly that right now they're out of shul indefinitely. They at their age, they have said they are out of shul indefinitely, and you know they're not in discouraging the OU or others, you know, to encourage others to open up. But they have said, "I'm out. I, I care too much about my health, and it's a requirement halachically to care about my health. I'm not going back." With all that in mind, what is your opinion right now about gatherings for religious services in our community? So I think the shuls that have been following guidelines strictly, I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, There are many, many of those shuls that are following rigid guidelines with enforcement by Gabayim, which I think are beautiful, and and I'm incredibly impressed 
with how that's being done. However, there are many shuls, and we all know the truth, that are not following guidelines in terms of enforcing spacing and masks. Uh, and there's one shul in my community uh, that actually had uh, uh, somebody came to speak to me about it over Yontif. They had 11 senior citizens, 70-plus, davening in the Minion. Uh, three of them were wearing masks in my own community, 70-plus. And what I was told when they came to me is that the, uh, apparently the, the seniors told them my doctor said it was okay. So that's where the rub lies. I think for every shul that is following the rules and not allowing seniors to daven with that minion and not allowing high-riskers in and enforcing masks, we have to be cognizant that there are many shuls, at least in the Brooklyn area, that are breaking the rules, and they cannot break the rules. Those that are following the rules, let's model ourselves after them because they should be commended, and I'm proud that they're following those rules. I agree with you wholly. But we have to be careful. There's a lot of complacence going on within certain elements of our community, uh, our communities uh, worldwide and countrywide, and we can't be complacent. Uh, this virus has not left us yet. You know, Israel yesterday declared they published, uh, they tested uh, uh, many people for the antibody, and they were surprised to find out that with the greatest measures in place, uh, only um, a very small number of them, about two, two and a half percent, had immunity, not immunity, but had antibodies present, which means, uh, and I want people to understand the number they came up with, uh, the Israeli study showed that when you do testing, it reflects only about 10 percent of the people who currently had the vi- or past had the virus. So in Israel, they currently have 2,000 active cases uh, that are documented, which reflects 20,000 active cases. So it's 10 times the number that it appears to be based on testing. So the cautionary tale for shuls is please stay to the rules, as Nachum just said. If you see shuls are breaking rules, do not attend those shuls. Go to a shul that's following the guidelines. That's my view. And as far as the gadolim and, and those who are not attending shul, they are correct. Seniors and older individuals who are high risk should not be attending indoor minyanim right now. And um, and 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 you admire those people over sixty five who have the self awareness and, and those with with preconditions who have the self awareness to make that decision. And many of them saying it publicly. Uh, and um, and by the way, Dr. Dietrich, I, I have to point out, uh, I, I wasn't even aware of this until I saw, I think it was a Wall Street Journal graph that I saw. We know that there are unfortunately plenty, too many people in our community and in other communities, uh, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 20s and 30s, who have died. We know that. But until I saw this graph, I did not realize just how overwhelmingly the majority, how overwhelming a majority of people who died has been people over 65 and 70. I mean, the numbers are staggering. So those, who, are. So those who don't think that that group should think differently than other groups, you're out of your mind because we're talking about 70 80% of all COVID deaths in this country in that age group, and that's really scary. Which is exactly the data that I gave the week of Purim, if you remember correctly. That right. was the data we had from, uh, from China and from the European experience. But more importantly, remember, uh, yes, the deaths were dramatically over the age of 70, 75, and continue to be. However, many of those were contacted or infected by asymptomatic people, people right. who showed no signs of infection. And that's what the real message is. The death rate, we know what it is, but we don't know yet what the infection rate is from asymptomatic people to them. 
So we need to understand that we don't understand everything about this virus right now. Uh, We're figuring it out with time. But I will tell you, the greatest experts in this country all agree that after three months of struggling this battle, we still don't have a good handle. We still don't have a single drug treatment that is fully effective against COVID or very effective against COVID. And we still, unfortunately, don't have a vaccine until sometime later this year. So caution is the name of the game. Um, we don't have to go, especially if you don't want to, because I know it's a controversial topic. We don't have to go into statements you've made in the past about it, but I'm just curious if your uh, view of hydrochloroquine is any different today than it was. So hydrochloroquine is a hot button topic, as you know, I will tell you that the data to date of the studies that have been done are not very promising about hydroxychloroquine. At the early stages of the pandemic, I was a very strong advocate of using hydroxychloroquine on ultra-high-risk patients. I did use it on ultra-high-risk patients, especially my Kids of Courage campers. We used it on quite a few of them during the early stages of the pandemic, as well as people in my community who had very high-risk, ultra-high-risk. And thank God most of them did phenomenally. However, that's not a study. That's called anecdotal experience. So my experience should not reflect policy, nor should any other doctor's single experience. The studies to date are not very good. And the the task force that I'm part of and the working group of voluntary physicians who are part of it, who are experts, pretty much unanimously agree that although hydroxy probably has a role, uh, possibly, possibly in early cases, um, it's not very good right now. The data is not supporting the benefits that we believed it had early on. We did use it aggressively early on because, quite frankly, we had no choices. We had no treatments for desperate people who were gasping for air at the early stages of COVID when they were getting very sick at home. So, yes, we did think more of it uh, several weeks back. Uh, Today, the scientists have not been giving a positive experience with hydroxy and overall it's a negative so far i think one of the reasons that people love hearing what you have to say on this topic and other medical issues is your uh, your uh, obvious honesty uh and, and you gave it giving it gave us a real honest account of that experience and by the way it's a good time to point out and maybe the anti-vaxxers should pay careful attention to this you and nobody else in the world of science uh is saying that you're 100 percent right about anything but you make decisions and you try to save lives based on the current information that we now have. If that information changes or if the experience, as you just indicated, changes, obviously you and others will adjust. That's what life is all about, not just in medicine, but in anything. And when, when, you, right. when you or anyone else in this country recommends a vaccine, you are doing so based on the knowledge of the scientific world, the medical world, and the rabbinic world. And all that together, putting it together and making a recommendation of, you know, this is the best way for society to move forward. And I think that that often, uh, you know, because of the the conspiracy theorists out there, I think often that they, they completely ignore that. That everybody in all those worlds together, based on the information they have, is trying to, you know, make a decision and release information and make suggestions that are best and most appropriate for these times. Right. And it takes a lot for physicians to look back at ourselves right, right. and say whether we've done something wrong. Right. Possibly. Right. I'm one of them. I, you know, I was, I, as I said, with hydroxy, I was one of the advocates early on at the beginning when we were desperate. Uh, at this point, I, I am not. And 
when a doctor tells you they don't know, that's the doctor you should be listening to. Yeah. Uh, because the ones who know are the ones who aren't in the know. Right. My, my father used to quote the Mishnah Tov Shabarofim Gehenim, meaning that those doctors who think they know it all and don't know that it all comes from the one above and the knowledge that he imparts on them, uh, that, uh, unfortunately that is where they belong. Those who are ready to do what you just did uh, obviously deserve a much better fate, to say the least. <laughs> so, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> trust me on that one. Uh, um, all right, the message is very simple. I don't know if your opinion on other things has changed. I know that outdoor activities, you'd have to agree. I mean, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Outdoor activities or outdoor minyanim that are safe and following the guidelines we described earlier are safer than indoor, right? Anything outdoor is going to be safer. That's one of the things we've learned over the last few weeks, correct? Correct. However, with caution, right. uh, we now know from the aerosol studies that I posted recently uh, that from MIT and some of the other institutions that aerosol, uh, micro aerosol droplets do remain uh, suspended in outdoor environments as well, not just indoor. Right. Uh, we learned that recently. I posted it on, on social media. I wanted people to learn about that because outdoors is safer, but not completely safe. Uh, that's very important for people to realize. I also would just mention, I'm, everybody's asking me about camps and day camps. Right, right. I'm you know, I, again, it's a cautionary tale. I want people to understand. I'm excited about society reopening uh, here in New York, I, as we all are. We need to get back to normal. We need to get people back to work. We need to get everything back to normal in a safe and very cautious way. I, I, I'm super excited that there's going to be openings of businesses and whatnot next week. Um, quite frankly, I wish they would open this week, but with the riots and everything, right. it's become even more difficult. Uh, but I want to say something about camps because the Israeli school experience may not be different than what our camp experience is going to be. The, it, it, once Israel opened up schools, and they were pretty confident, you see within two weeks there are closures now because of spread amongst children. Right. And that spread amongst children did spread to the older popular, uh, population, high-risk population as a result. That we know that is a fact right now. Um, now, Israel is not us. They had different demographics, different experience overall. The, the one thing I will tell you, if and when camps do open, and even with the best safety measures, and I've been asked to consult from many camps and schools even for the fall, I'm now consulting with several schools here in the New York area um, how to reopen safely. Uh, but one thing I want people to understand, reopening doesn't mean you're going to be reopened two weeks later. If there's spread of infection within any camp, whether it's a day camp or a sleepaway camp, I promise you that the health departments will have to get involved and figure out whether that camp can remain open right. uh, and whether, or what quarantine measures need to take place going forward. That's number one. Number two, on a positive note, and this is something we're all davening for, one of the greatest uh, – when I daven now, this is what I have in mind, that the virus will hopefully become, quote-unquote, seasonal – in other words, it'll dissipate over the summer, and hopefully we won't see it again until the fall when we're better prepared, both hospital-wise and vaccine-wise. However, I'm going to remind everybody that the swine flu, which started, I believe, in Memorial Day 2009, stayed with us the whole summer right. and disappeared just at the end of August, only to reappear in October. Um, so, and, and swine flu was a lot less serious than, than coronavirus. So, I want people to understand we don't know the predictions yet on what the behavior of the virus will be this summer here in the New York area or anywhere throughout the country. We just don't know. Uh, we will figure it out. But understand that when they say a camp is opening, 
you don't be disappointed if there are modifications to those openings once cases occur. If we're fortunate, the virus will have less activity in the summer months, and we won't see any effect on camps. But that's a big if, and we need to wait for that data to see how the virus behaves. And with the proper precautions and the proper guidance by, again, rabbis, medical, board of health, etc., um, you, you would, it sounds like you would not be shocked if a, a good number of schools open up in September. Yeah, I think the schools will open. Uh, I think they're going to have different versions of opening. Uh, I've heard of one school in Manhattan that's actually not opening till November. Uh, they believe that the vaccine will be out in October, and that's what they're planning on. Uh, I have another school, uh, two schools in Brooklyn that I consulted with in the last 48 hours that uh, wants to open in September. We're giving them guidelines now on what the classroom will look like, uh, what the screening procedures will be every morning, what the response procedures will be if a kid develops infection in the classroom or a teacher, uh, how staff has to be screened. We're developing very sophisticated guidelines for the schools to reopen. And again, you know, life should be okay around September, I hope. And people have to understand that right after the Yom Tovim, if God is good to us, we will have a vaccine if, if Hashem is good to us and the studies continue to show positive results. Dr. Dietrich, I will continue to pray for you. Please continue to pray for me. Thank you. No, I appreciate the voice out there, the voice of reason that you give. And, and I want people to understand that what you're doing, what so many clinicians are doing that I know, uh, is saving lives. And, and it really doesn't matter that certain elements of our communities are critical of you or me, uh, because if you're not critical of somebody, they're not saying the proper message. Of course, people are going to be critical. Uh, but I have to tell you, 99% plus of the messages I get are supportive and positive. And I want to thank everybody for that. I, my wife was floored, Eric Shavuos, with the number of gifts we got from strangers, people we did not know, uh, who sent gifts and packages and letters. And it was overwhelming. I, I, we were floored. We, we, we have a freezer full of cakes <laughs> from Shavuos. And Dr. Dietrich, uh, if you're going to follow the advice you give me, those will stay in the freezer. <laughs> Don't worry, nothing. They haven't stayed in yet. <laughs> <laughs> They've already been out, huh? Exactly. <laughs> They've already escaped. Dr. Including D- this morning. <laughs> Dr. Dietrich, all, all, the, all the gifts and accolades are, uh, are certainly warranted. Thank you again and stay well. Thank you, Nachum. Be well. The great Dr. Stuart Dietrich at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. 